Does more funding for polling stations increase voter turnout? What are the best practices when it comes to redistricting? And does greater transparency support a less contentious election? With the midterm election just days away, we look at the U.S. election system and what changes in that sphere mean for climate and energy policy. Welcome to Political Climate, a podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. As always, I'm your host, Julia Piper. Today, I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Brandon is a clean tech investor, policy consultant with Boundary Stone Partners and climate advocate. Shane is a policy advisor on energy, infrastructure, and environmental policy issues also at Boundary Stone Partners, as well as a resident expert on all things Capitol Hill. Hey, Brandon, how you doing? We're just one week out from the election. What's uh, what's going on in Democrat camp? Uh, I'm excited for the election. I can't believe it's here. Uh, can you believe, Julia and Shane, that it was four years ago around this time we went to Yale and we did the live show for the election preview? Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. We actually went to Yale School of Forestry, did an awesome live show. I remember we were, think we were talking about some of the races to watch, and then we went for pizza after and had an awesome conversation with the students. Man. Sean Caston ran an ad running on climate. He was the only person doing it. Uh, we showed the ad, I think. Uh, we did. The, yeah. And now he's in a tough race and hope he stays in there. Crazy times. Crazy times. Shane, what's going on with you? What's going on in Republican camp? Yeah, doing well. Um, I, I, you know, I'm excited. This is an interesting election. I mean, some of these races have moved, you know, five or 10 points in either direction, depending on what time of year it is. In March, you know, I would have guessed the Republicans were going to pick up 70 to 80 seats in the House and easily take the Senate. In August, you know, the House looked like we were going to have a very narrow margin on the Republican side and the Senate was completely out of reach. Uh, and obviously now heading into November, uh, it's a total toss up on a, on a personal level uh, in my district here in California, which Joe Biden won by 20 points. Um, the Republican candidate is a good friend of mine is polling within one point on both his and the DCCC's uh, polls. So very, very interesting time, even in Southern California. We're going to talk more about the election. Of course, it's on a lot of people's minds. We're going to connect the dots here between not just what the polling says and what, you know, could come of this year's election, but really the system that surrounds our elections in America and what this means for climate energy policy today and how reshaping that election system could actually result in better climate energy policy in the future, potentially. And to do that, we're joined by Professor Christian Gross. He's the academic director at the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and a professor of political science and public policy at the University of Southern California. Professor Gross is the author of more than 40 articles and chapters about American politics, legislative politics, public policy, race and ethnicity, voting rights, and political representation. He's now conducting research on how to best improve voter access and voting rights while reducing polarization. We're so excited to get to talk to you about some of your new research, especially as we head into Election Day here. I hear you're quite busy, Professor. Uh, what's top of mind for you? I think there's a lot of really interesting things going on. I think the congressional elections are really close, like uh, Shane and Brandon were talking about, closer than I would have guessed. Um, I would have also thought Democrats would not do as well because the party controls all the branches of government, but it's kind of unpredictable. And so I'm, I'm interested to see what happens. You know, my guess is Republicans will make some gains. And then the question is just how much. Um, I am really interested in the elections in California. I'm interested in elections in Michigan. I'm interested in elections in Arizona, but mostly because they draw districts differently than most other states in the rest of the country. And so I kind of want to see the differences and who gets elected there and how they how they act in Washington afterwards. 
So we're going to unpack some of that. I'd love to just take a second because we've had the privilege of being supported by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute as Political Climate, the podcast. I'd love for you just to explain what the Institute's approach is to elections, the kind of work streams you've decided to take on and what the philosophy is really spearheaded by Arnold Schwarzenegger himself, former governor of California. What are those work streams he has wanted to prioritize? Yeah, so Governor Schwarzenegger created the USC Schwarzenegger Institute in 2012 uh, after he was governor. Um, he created it to do really three main uh, areas, climate policy and environment, political reform and election reform, and then after school education, also other important issues that arise. I handle a lot of the work on political and election reform that the Institute does. And um, over the years, the Institute has focused a lot on redistricting reform. Governor Schwarzenegger, when he was in office, pushed really hard to get a redistricting commission passed in California, both for the state legislature and for uh, Congress. And then that passed and was implemented for the first time in 2012. And then again, for the elections in 2022. Um, we also do work on primaries and primary reform. That was another passion of Governor Schwarzenegger when he was governor. And he's continued to fight both for primary reform and redistricting reform uh, since he's been governor. The last few years, Governor Schwarzenegger has gotten really interested you know, in extending this work that he did as governor um, into the area of voter access and voting rights. And so a lot of that is about making it easier to vote in a nonpartisan way to try to give people greater access to get to the polls. Governor Schwarzenegger came across some work about the closure of polling places in the South in particular, but also in other parts of the country and was concerned about that. And then in 2020, he donated approximately two and a half million dollars to the USC Schwarzenegger Institute to do what I think is one of the most innovative programs that's ever been run by a university um, and by an institute. And that was to create the nonpartisan democracy grants to open polling places in states and counties formerly um, covered by the Voting Rights Act. Um, and so I'm happy to talk about that more, but the governor's basically been doing work going all the way back to when he was governor on redistricting, on primary reform, and then now on voter access and voting rights and, and getting involved in those three election reform areas. Support for Political Climate comes from Climate Positive, a podcast from Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure, the first U.S. public company solely dedicated to investing in climate solutions. With the climate crisis surrounding us, it's easy to let defeatism and complacency creep in. But there's so much to be hopeful for. Climate Positive Podcast features candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and change makers driving our climate positive future. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Yeah, I love that you highlighted those democracy grants. They were indeed innovative. I think folks may remember the headlines around that time of Governor Schwarzenegger actually putting his own money into these democracy grants. And he said in a quote at the time, I don't care if you're an independent authority, a Democratic elections official or Republican elections official. I just don't want a single American to lose their ability to vote because of a lack of funding. I think this could be one of the best investments I've ever made. And really, if you're talking about American democracy, 
that's a great investment. So I'd love to start with you walking us through those democracy grants, $2.5 million. How did you set these up? Where did the dollars go? And then we can talk about some of the results. So it was really is a really exciting program, and I do think that um, Governor Schwarzenegger deserves a ton of credit for having this amazing idea, and deserves a lot of credit for also administering it through the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. Not only did it directly impact voters and directly impact nonpartisan election administration, it also allows us as a university to study and research the impacts of it, so we know if it worked or not. In terms of what happened back in 2020. COVID was happening. There's a lot of concern, especially in the general election, about would people show up to vote? How will people vote? The use of vote by mail, the use of additional polling places or closing polling places. Um, There's a lot of uncertainty about it because it costs more money in 2020 to run elections. And when I say cost more money, I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about people who are running for office. I'm talking about sort of the bureaucrats on the ground who are nonpartisan in most states who mostly work within every county in the United States, who do things like figure out what paper they use to print ballots or, you know, help hire poll workers to make sure they have enough polling places staffed. So a lot of the sort of unglamorous work of democracy that I think only recently a lot of people focused on, you know, we were thinking about, and Governor Schwartz and I were thinking about over the last few years. And so the grants were basically an opportunity for people who are election administrators in a subset of states to apply to receive funds to open new polling places. And that could be to hire more people, to give people COVID hazard pay so that they would stay and not quit and the polling places would be able to be open. Could be to pay rent for a new polling place. It might be um, to cover just a variety of expenses to basically keep either early voting polling places or election day polling places open. It was limited to states that had previously shown histories of discrimination against um, voters of color because those are the states that are most likely to have polling place closures. Um, And so that was the genesis of it. And then Governor Schwarzenegger in particular was interested in not having a budget be an excuse for why you might close polling places, right? So the idea would be every single county who applied would be eligible and would receive funds. Um, Everyone who applied and was eligible um, went through a review process I chaired a committee with some faculty and staff at USC. We reviewed it to make sure that the funds were actually for election administration, that they're actually for opening polling places. But then once that hurdle was uh, overcome, every single county that applied for a grant received a grant. So everyone who wanted one to open more polling places was able to receive one to open more polling places. And so, you know, approximately 200 new early voting locations were open in counties that applied. A little more than 1,000 election day polling places were open in counties that applied. The grants went to about eight states. Um, Some of the things, for instance, in Phoenix, Arizona, Maricopa County, um, I think it was eight new polling centers were funded that were in sports arenas all across the county and basically where people could drive through and drop off their ballots or or, um, do early voting in in the sports arenas. Other places, it was like hiring additional staff, including a Spanish interpreter, to stand outside of the polling places and collect people's mail-in ballots, because so many people were actually showing up in person, but with mail-in ballots due to COVID. Christian, I have a two-part question. One is, do you think that there is an intentional Republican strategy to have less people vote in areas that tend to be Democratic, and that's why we have less polling locations and long lines? And then my second question is, what do you make of this voter intimidation that's happening 
where we now see an increase in people's fear to go and vote, particularly in areas like Arizona. The second question, I have a really good story that we some things we learned about intimidation during the Schwarzenegger grants process. The The first question is, you know, when it comes to the grants program, because we're a university and we're, you know, a nonpartisan nonprofit university, we didn't consider partisanship at all in the grants. And so, you know, I actually haven't looked that closely at the partisan decisions one way or another. Just anecdotally, I mean, I know we got grants from all over a lot of different geographies in the states that applied. Some places are, you know, rural areas in the mountains of the South, which, you know, historically are more Republican. Other places are suburban, um, Southern places that used to be Republican that are swinging a bit more Democrat. But we didn't really look at the partisanship. So it's harder for me to answer that related to the grants. Now, generally, more generally, stepping away from the grants, is there an attempt to try to make it harder to vote for partisan gains? There's some research that shows that's the case. I think most of the research, though, shows that it's unpredictable to try to game that system. You never know who's going to actually be the person using the mail-in ballot or voting in person. Um, in 2020, Democrats used mail ballots more than Republicans. But if you go back in time, especially in Arizona, Arizona has a long history of using vote by mail. It's been a Republican state for a long time until very recently becoming a swing state. Republicans regularly use vote by mail in Arizona well, much more frequently than Democrats. So I don't think it necessarily helps Republicans or Democrats to actually make it easier to vote with vote by mail or with in-person ballot boxes or early voting. Um, a lot of the research shows it's a little bit unpredictable. On voter intimidation, so we have a we have a poll in the field right now through the Schwarzenegger Institute called the California Issues Poll. We've been doing this for the last several election cycles. One of the questions on the poll is about poll worker intimidation. And we asked voters in two different forms of questions. It's an experiment. One of them, we asked voters, would you want to be a poll worker? Yes or no. And when you ask them if they want to be a poll worker, not very many of them do. Um, large majority say that they don't want to be a poll worker. But then when you tell them, Poll workers are under threat. They're being intimidated. Regular voters who want to be poll workers in the future, like in 2024, jump quite a bit. Um, so the intimidation argument, sort of surprisingly, and I think helpfully, is motivating more people to want to be involved in nonpartisan election administration, sign up to work in the elections in the next go round based on some data. Um, in terms of what I think about it, going back to the grants program, we interacted through the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the administration of the grants with a number of election administrators on the ground who applied for our grants and received the funds. Several of them faced pretty significant intimidation in 2020 um, and probably still are today. We heard, you know, we would be um, you know, just communicating with them about delivering their grant funds or checking in to see how the funds were being spent. And, you know, they were telling us a lot of it was really great stories. Right. So one of them was saying how she was able to hire furloughed workers who'd been um, furloughed due to the pandemic. And one of them had texted her that she could feed her baby that night because she got hired to be a poll worker with extra COVID hazard pay and really, really great stories, not all about intimidation. So I don't want to I don't want to suggest it's all about intimidation. But others were, you know, talking and telling us that people were finding um, racist stuff that was left on polling trucks. Um, there's there's one particular county, this met, this got some news in Gwinnett County, Georgia, if I recall. One of the election workers had a something racist that was left by somebody as he was just going around and doing his job. 
Um, another county that we gave a grant to was um, in North Carolina, and uh, the name of the county is Surrey County. It's a small county in the mountains of North Carolina near the Virginia border. The election administrator there applied for the funds. I remember when the grant application was out, she called me and asked for more information and said, I'm desperate. We're losing poll workers. A lot of the people who volunteer are retirees. This is amazing. This will help us so much by providing a lifeline to keep the polling places open in the county. Um, It's a small rural county, right? So we agreed to grant funds to that county. And um, after she, she and her team had sent in her application, Um, And then fast forward to 2021, she has faced a ton of ridiculous requests about the grants. We were not the only grants program. Um, There's another one that was an independent one run by um, the Center for Tech and Civic Life. She also applied for grants from them. A lot of people really came after her in particular and basically made up crazy conspiracy theories that she was fixing the election and just basically doing all sorts of crazy stuff that was not true. Um, And she was like silently facing all of these attacks and no one really knew about it because she's in a tiny county that people don't pay attention to that much. Um, And then just this week, there was some coverage about her and her county and the attacks that she faced from elected officials who approved the grant funding, by the way, and then said they wanted to take the grant funding back um, from a lot of local people in the town, people at her church who were basically harassing her after 2020 just because she accepted funds to make it easier to vote. I remember, um, you know, voting years ago uh, in California and waiting outside for hours and finding it terribly inconvenient. Um, Fast forward, you know, living and working in D.C., but actually living in Virginia. I remember having to get there at like 630, standing in the freezing cold, waiting outside so that I could get to work on time. At the time, I found it obnoxious, but it was just the cost of doing business, right? Like voting is super important. I think, you know, a lot of Republicans perceive that that is a necessary step because at least that way you can verify that, you know, votes are legit and all that. Having said that, the research out there, everything that I read says that fears of fraudulent voting and fears of, you know, uh, unfair elections are are overblown and that there isn't a lot of data to support that even with, you know, mail-in balloting and all these different things. What do you think the disconnect is there? I mean, what do you think the disconnect is between the fear that if you don't have someone show up with an ID and cast their ballot, it's not going to work? And the data that apparently says that um, it's not been a problem. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think a lot of it is just perception, right? So people, there's something about going to um, a polling place physically, especially if you're not used to casting a ballot by mail, that, you know, if if it's changed, people start to wonder about it. You know, most of the research shows there's not much of a difference at all. The research, in fact, mostly shows that when a person changes how they vote, they like that version that they've decided to do better. And so like the people that aren't used to voting by mail don't like it and they're nervous about it. And then the people who vote by mail regularly get used to it and then they think it's fine. And so especially in 2020, we had a lot of new methods that people were not as familiar with because of COVID. And I think that was a big change that made a bunch of people nervous. Um, You know, there was a lot of other stuff too, election results denial, I think that certainly didn't help things. But the big change in so many states raised a lot of questions. But I mean, on balance, voting, any one vote is unlikely to really swing an election. I know that we always encourage everyone to vote, and I certainly tell my students they need to vote. But realistically, the gains anyone could get from putting a vote by mail ballot in that was fraudulent is so low, you'd have to do it on a, such a massive scale that it wouldn't it wouldn't be even be feasible. Um, and when that does happen, it's been caught. I mean, there's a case in North Carolina 
a few years ago in a congressional district, there was a guy that went around stealing absentee ballots for uh, one of the incumbents and basically changing people's votes. But that's not vote by mail. That's literally someone stealing people's ballots and changing their votes. That was a Republican. I, it was it. I can't remember for sure. Yeah, it was. I think that's right. It was a very close uh, election afterwards, I remember. And Shane, don't you think cost of doing business to wait in line? I mean, some people don't have a cushy job like you at Boundary Stone where you can sort of show up when you want. You know, they've got to be at work at a certain time where they could lose their job. With coworkers like these. I don't know if that's an advertisement <laughs> for our open positions or what. But uh, no, no, I, I mean, I, I vote by mail. Look, I voted by mail the last three cycles. So I'm not in a position to, to really have any negative opinion. I think what Christian said is right. I didn't like it. I did it. And I was like, oh, this is actually a much better process for me uh, than going to vote. I'm just simply pointing to the perception, like the talking points, and I'm not defending the position at all, but I do think we have a problem here if uh, we get to a point where people don't trust election outcomes on either side for any reason. It's not good, right? It's not good for democracy. It's not good for anyone. And the talking point that's really hard to rebut, even when I talk to my own colleagues and friends, is like, I can't buy cigarettes or alcohol without an ID, and you're telling me I can vote anywhere? It's it's difficult for me to debate that perspective. And so what I'm asking is, it sounds like the data proves that out. But that's not being accepted. So how do we link those two things? Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of things on voter identification. So most states, you do have to have identification to register to vote, right? So part of it is that initial registration. It's not like vote by mail ballots go out to people that are unregistered and have never proved their identity. You prove your identity prior to the vote by mail ballots going out, and then they continue to be sent in states like California and states like Arizona. I mean, the other part of it is just the waiting in line and the sort of spending time to vote, putting aside just the vote by mail question, but thinking more about the the cost of voting and not not the financial cost, but in political science, we call this thing, like if you have to wait a long time to do something, there's a cost, like in economics and political science in a broader sense. You know, if you look at really populated cities and counties, large places, the waits are longer because there's more people there, right? So those are the kind of places that also just would want to have more vote by mail Cities are are democratic and suburbs are swing slash leaning democratic lately. Vote by mail may be more convenient for people instead of waiting in line for four hours versus if you're in a rural county where you have two polling places, but your your wait is five minutes long. And so a lot of the data shows that, you know, um, if you look at a state like Texas, the amount of time it takes to wait in line, if you look at surveys, if you're in the really big counties is much, much longer than compared to the small counties, for instance. And then some other things is just, it might build character to wait in line while it's really cold out, but there was a county in Virginia, in the mountains of Virginia, that applied for one of the USC Schwarzenegger Institute grants and received it. And what it spent the funds on was to buy generators for all of the polling places so that, because the power goes out in November, uh, and then they open up a new polling place on the other side of the mountain because it takes 20 miles to drive to get to this one particular area where a lot of people live. And that's, you know, probably save people one or two hours a time. And so I, I think that sort of thing is really good. Like lowering people's time, if that means you're voting by mail, if it means you're voting at a polling place that's closer. And I think that's sort of regardless of if the voter's a Democrat or a Republican. I mean, it's going to help people if it's easier to vote. Um, and so, you know, messaging on it is hard. I, I, I do think voting and how you vote has become oddly politicized in ways that it used to not, it just used to not be that political to decide, am I gonna vote on election day or am I gonna vote early three days beforehand? And it's become very, it's become much more partisan and politicized by people's choices of how they vote. And it's, you know, it's really odd. Christian, 
there's a question I've always wanted to ask an expert like you. In order to increase voter turnout, why isn't there an option to just vote on my phone? I mean, I have to use my face to open my phone. A lot of people have a smartphone, so nobody else could like use it, right? And I transact all sorts of money across my phone all the time, every day that's totally secure. So is there like a secure way with the technology that we have available today to allow people to vote by phone? Yeah, so I, I don't know as much about this, so I'm going to punt a little bit. There are some people working on this. Like, there's a guy named Michael Alvarez, who's a professor at Caltech, who's been studying the ability to vote securely. So a few computer scientists at Harvard who are, who are working on this. From what I understand is, as you might imagine, the security concerns are the biggest, right? So the difference between even like a vote by mail ballot and voting on on your phone, at least at this point, is the tracking of it, right? And knowing that it that blockchain, somebody, hmm? blockchain. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. So, so there's work there's work being done on that. But one of the reasons that there's all these other I don't people, actually know if that's the case. It just sounded everyone says blockchain. Shiba coin will save us. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is also when we like so when we do electronic transactions with our bank, some of us do get hacked or some something does go wrong with one person, but it doesn't affect rarely the entire financial system. And so I think that's the biggest concern is more about the hacking and the security. And so until the security issue is solved, um, the oversight is important. And so, you know, good thinking about going to vote at the polling place, you're going to vote in, in a lot of places, you're, you're voting on a computer, you're voting on something electronic that is, um, you know, tallying your votes in other places, it's actually on physical ballots, depending on the rules of the state or the county. But, um, one of the nice things about having all this people there and also even with mail-in ballots, having so many administrators who are nonpartisan or in some states of both parties is you have people monitoring and observing what's happening. And it's a little bit harder to observe the phone and Internet voting, at least at this point. But you're right. And a lot of other things, you know, shares of companies, shareholders vote electronically. Right. There's a lot of things and there's work on that being done. But the question, I think, is security. Talking about transparency, I have heard in the news and other places that some of the elections officials are trying to open their doors, say, come on down to your point about people raising their hands to work at polling stations. Even some people who denied the results of the last election are getting a look at how it works, like see the hardwired machine. There's no booby trap here. And that in some places has helped build more confidence once people got to see themselves just what exactly is going on here and frankly, how boring it is <laughs> and, and just how it all goes. But I want to now switch a little bit to some polling. I know this is early. It's still out in the field right now, kind of leading up to the midterms. And one of the issues I know you're looking at as part of the polling you're conducting, I believe in, in California and some other parts of the country, is related to democracy, to poll workers, but also the environment. So could you highlight some of what you're seeing, again, early results there? Yeah. So at the Schwarzenegger Institute, we do a poll of um, California voters. And so this one is this one is in California. I also do a bunch of polling in other places, too. And I've been super busy doing lots of polling the last couple of weeks. But in for the California issue polls at the USC Schwarzenegger Institute, we uh, surveyed the likely voters in California about how they're going to vote on Proposition 30. Proposition 30 is a ballot initiative in the state that will actually provide more funding for um, parks and um, natural uh, natural spaces, but also will come with a tax, um, a, a tax on millionaires to fund it. 
is that the electric vehicle yes, one? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And it'll help provide funds with electric vehicles. It'll provide some subsidies to rideshare companies, for instance, who will use electric vehicles. Right. Um, and it's become really controversial in the state in terms of the campaign where proponents of it focus on how it'll, it'll increase electric vehicle usage. It will increase spending on parks. And then opponents are talking about how it's a tax and how the a lot of the benefits are going to go to companies like Lyft. Um, and so it's interesting to know where where it would go. You know, the um, the early polling is showing that the state is generally against the proposition. So the sort of lift will benefit more than the individual or more than electric cars seems to be resonating with voters. And we'll see if that's what ends up happening when all the ballots are counted in a week um, or actually it takes longer than a week to count the ballots in California in a couple of weeks. But the, there, there are potential environmental benefits from the proposition, but there's also a lot of opposition that has been really, I think, well done in terms of a political campaign against it. Um, and the poll results are showing that it's it's losing right now. That's interesting that like the environmental benefit is kind of like the last thing people are talking about. It's who will benefit more, like millionaires or the startup rideshare companies, you know, and, and then they're like, oh, yeah, and the environment also somewhere in the mix. Yeah. And I mean, in the state, a lot of environmental advocates are behind the proposition, um, but there's also a decent amount of opposition to it from, you know, people who are who are arguing about the um, tax component and then also about the um, who benefits in terms of how how it'll actually be implemented. So don't worry, Brandon and Shane, you guys are going to be fine. You may not have to pay that additional tax in your, <laughs> with your multi-multi-millions you got there. <laughs> what I'm wondering, Julia, is are you going to pay the $8 or $20 a month for your blue check mark? Yeah. <laughs> On Twitter, right. The new owner, Elon Musk, did say to be validated, uh, verified, you have to pay bucks a month for the sake of democracy, right? Now everyone can have a blue check mark. Shane and I don't have to worry about it. We don't have this problem. I always kind of felt like I should have it. <laughs> Political Climate is brought to you by Climate Positive, a podcast produced by the pioneering climate investment firm Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure. Hosted by Chad Reed, Gil Jenkins, and Hilary Langer, Climate Positive features in-depth conversations with a broad range of business leaders, authors, advocates, and policymakers who are committed to making a difference. Listen to Max Rodriguez, an attorney with Pollock Cohen, unpack the arguments that support the EPA's authority to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act and what impact the language in the IRA may have in the ongoing legal battle. Or find out how Tim Brown, as CEO of Tradewater, scours the globe to aggregate potent gases and destroy them before they leak into the atmosphere. Climate Positive unpacks their guests' personal journeys while discussing the emerging energy and environmental trends that will drive us all toward a more just and sustainable future. Check it out and subscribe to Climate Positive wherever you get your podcasts. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. 
Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. I'd love to switch now to talk about redistricting. That is another core element of, of the work you do at the Schwarzenegger Institute. First, tell us how the issue of redistricting relates to climate and energy policy. I know it's a two-step to get there, but at the end of the day, we're talking about systems. They affect everything that we do. What's the connection that you see? Yeah, I mean, so I love redistricting. This is this is something that I think Governor Schwarzenegger and I share the same interest in something most people ask, what is that? You and a lot of politicians love redistricting. Yeah, well, yeah. happens a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> but other than other than politicians and then a few people who kind of observe the process, most people ask, what is redistricting and why should I care, right? And so you should care. If you care about climate and you care about the environment and you care about public policy, you should definitely care about redistricting. Um, just redistricting, just so everybody knows, is the redrawing of lines to elect people to Congress, to elect people to the state legislature, to elect people to the city council um, and other uh, elections. Uh, but we usually think about it for Congress and for state legislatures. Happens every 10 years after the census. We just went through a redistricting cycle. So all of the U.S. House districts in every state, except for those that only have one House member like Delaware, they all had to redraw their lines. Um, and so the politicians and the elected officials really care about this because they want they want lines that will protect their seats or sometimes they draw lines to you know help their party. They make some strategic choices. If the legislature's redrawing the lines, they sometimes try to get a little bit more for their own party. Like if the if the Democrats control the chamber or the Republicans control the chamber, they try to help their own party. But then there's a few states like California now for the first time in 2022, Michigan. Um, is another one of these states, Colorado, that has an independent redistricting commission. And so this was this was something that was started in California in 2012 and is now the second time in 2022. And it's different in the states that do it, but more or less citizens apply to draw the lines instead of the legislators themselves. When the citizens draw the lines, based on my research, voters have better perceptions of how fair the process is. It's harder for incumbents and parties to you know, get exactly what they want. You know, they still try to influence the process through public comments, but, you know, they're not redrawing the lines in, a, in back rooms like the legislatures do. Um, so why does this matter for climate, right? That's that's the first part of it. What's redistricting and why does it matter? Redistricting matters because it's how we elect the people we elect. And if the districts are too safe, they get to stay there as long as they want. And it makes it harder for them to be responsive to what the public wants when the public changes its views. But it makes a big difference for climate and the environment because certain states basically kind of enshrine incumbents in really safe seats. And, you know, state, one example would be Wisconsin. Texas would be an example. Um, most recently, Republican legislature in Texas really worked to protect as many incumbents as possible. But if you go back to the 1990s, the Democrats were in control of Texas back then. They did the exact same thing. They did everything they could to keep as many Democrats in power, even as the state was trending Republican. And so, you know, in states like that, the people that get elected don't really have an incentive to try to speak to issues that matter. And so as voters care more about climate, as things are changing in terms of climate policy, the incumbent legislators are not, right? Their, their incentives are to be polarized and to basically stop things from happening, to stop new public policies. And so if you, you know, if you look at the public opinion the last couple of years in polls of congressional districts in the entire country, you know, majorities of almost every single congressional district, all 435 Democrats or Republicans, favor some real basic um, changes to environmental policy to try to stem climate change. 
But the people who get elected, it's become a very partisan issue in, in Washington because of redistricting and because of other electoral systems. It's a lot harder to work across the aisle when legislators redraw the lines um, and it's a lot easier to win. And so, you know, one hope, you know, it's, it's a bit of a hope and it might not happen is that states that have commissions that draw lines that make them a little more competitive. Those are the places that legislators, regardless of their party, might be more amenable to working with the other party, working in a bipartisan way on climate. Um, you know, if you do look at a state like California, which has had a commission for now a decade, the state legislature is, you know, can be pretty partisan and pretty ideological, but they do sometimes work together, business groups, uh, environmental groups, Republicans, sometimes a number of Republicans joining with a larger group of Democrats in the state legislature to pass environmental legislation. And so, you know, how we elect our people makes a huge difference in if they're willing to work together on climate or not. Well, what you're saying really resonates because that's kind of why we started this podcast. We got Brandon, our Democrat, Shane, our Republican, and we thought we'd solve all the problems on the airwaves. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. But um, I think what we do run into is appetite, as you're saying, for real climate policy, but then a system in which it's really hard to enact. And so I think that redistricting point is well taken and just like why we're kind of set up for failure a little bit. Yeah, and Christian, related to but not directly on point of redistricting is sort of how we run our primaries in those districts. And, you know, I hate to admit, I loathe to admit that it's one thing I think California does really well because of the top two primary system. In theory, at least, you are incentivized to run towards the largest number of voters, not towards, you know, the most rabid voters um, on either side of the aisle. In practice, it hasn't seemed to work that way. I mean, we know in other states, for example, it's always going to be the most conservative Republican versus the most liberal Democrat, which typically doesn't produce an outcome that most of the voters in the district want. In California, our system in theory remedies that problem, but it, it still doesn't seem to. Have you thought about that or do you think I'm misreading the situation? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, so that I mean, that's something Governor Schwarzenegger pushed for when he was governor is a pretty big change in California. The way it works here is the primary is everybody runs against each other, Democrats, Republicans, Green Party, Libertarian, whatever, and the top two finishers advance to the general election. Um, in a lot of other states, it's not like that. It's an R versus a D. You know, so if you're a, if you, you know, if you're a Republican running in New York City against a Democrat, the Democrat's going to win, right? And so it's all about getting the primary, the Democrat winning the primary. Similarly, in parts of, you know, Texas or Arkansas, winning the Republican primaries, everything. And so the primaries do create an incentive for um, enclosed systems, not in California's, to run to the left or run to the right. And then that makes that's hard to, to do things when you want to work on compromise or get together and work on climate across the aisle. There are not incentives for people in closed primary systems to do so. In California, there has been some research. I read an article in 2020. It's published in the Journal of Political Institutions and Political Economy. I compared members of Congress in California, Washington, and Louisiana, where they have top two systems, to other states. The members of Congress in the top two states are a little bit more moderate than the members in other states, but it's all else equal, right? So California has, over the time the primary has been top two, has gotten a lot more liberal in terms of its electorate. So people look at California and you think, oh, people getting elected here aren't that moderate, right? But relative to what would have probably happened under a closed Democratic primary, the people who are elected here are just marginally a little less extreme and a little bit more willing to work with people who are Republicans than their their colleagues elsewhere. And you picked up on one thing that I want to come back to 
The big difference in California and Washington and now Alaska, which has a different system, it's not a top two, but this this other system where people of the same party can run against each other, is that you have to have a general election that's competitive in order to sometimes elect people that are less extreme. You don't always elect somebody who's a moderate. You will always elect someone extreme if there's no general election. So I'm not I'm not suggesting that California has created moderate candidates because of the top two system or that Alaska might with its new system. It's more about just the chance of competition between people who are in the same party in the general election really opens up things where you can, you like if you're an elected official, you have to work hard. And that might mean, you know, working with somebody to try to um, get some environmental policy move forward or, you know, returning my phone call if I have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, and by me, and by me, I mean a constituent. Like a lot of times when people are so safe, they don't even have to bother returning phone calls to their constituents. But you kind of have to when you have a threat of competition. So to round it out, I'm curious to ask the question going up to the 30,000 foot view here. Do you feel more or less confident in the future of American democracy based on all of the research that you've done? Yeah, I mean, there's sometimes I get kind of disappointed and depressed, right? I mean, just things are. <laughs> Brandon's shaking his head. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, people think elections are fake. And also, this is something that's been around for a while. Basically, every time, a part- if you vote for the losing candidate, you often have less confidence in the democracy. That's not a 2020 thing. That's going back to 2000. That's going back to 2016, 2008. Like, the surveys are done every two years. How confident are you in the American democratic process? Small d democracy. Whoever loses is less confident, right? But lately, it's just gotten worse. We're like more people are less confident than they used to be. And that depresses me. But in general, I am pretty optimistic, right? When you look at people who are out there on the ground, you know, there are thousands of of election administrators and election workers just doing their jobs, getting yelled at, having crazy people do freedom of information requests about stuff that doesn't make sense. You know, a lot of them don't share what their own party views are, but a lot of them are Republicans and a lot of them are Democrats. Right. And so when you just go look at kind of the people doing the work on the ground, running the elections in as nonpartisan way as possible, I'm pretty optimistic. And then I'm also optimistic that, you know, when we are faced with threats in the country and we are faced with threats, people are responding by saying, I want to sign up. I want to help out. I want to be an election worker. I want to help with voting. And, you know, that makes me really optimistic. Christian, can't thank you enough for spending time with us. And I know we had a pretty robust discussion about election fraud or at least perceived election fraud. And and I think, you know, for our listeners and hopefully many others out there who watch cable news or listen to anything else, there will be more, uh, you know, individuals like yourself who are sophisticated about how this process works and are willing to explain it in terms that everyone sort of finds accessible. Because, you know, in any given two year cycle, the risk seems to be one person's party losing power. But the larger risk is that it doesn't matter anymore. The larger risk is that whatever happens in a given election, the populace generally just doesn't accept it. Uh, Not going to have a governable country that way. And so rather than fighting about this stuff constantly, what I'd love to see is people like you out there on this podcast and other places explaining to people why, you know, the data says that voter fraud isn't happening, what the perceptions are and why they're that way and sort of how we can rebut those. But I appreciate you doing it here with us. I just hope, you know, there's a that, that's being done on scale across the country leading up to and then after this election, frankly. Absolutely. It's interesting. You know, my friend Cody Keenan, who's a speechwriter for Obama, just wrote a book called Grace uh, that's out there. It's a really good read. And he had an event in L.A. recently. We took some Founder Stone folks there. And somebody asked Cody, what are his favorite speeches in history? What are the most important speeches in history? 
And he said one of them was John McCain's concession speech because him acknowledging, you know, this transfer of power uh, was so important to hear for Republicans. And, you know, Donald Trump did, never conceded the last election. And uh, we're still paying the price for that. Yeah, I mean, that's where I think that people are going to be really sad and bummed when their candidates lose elections and when their parties lose elections. And it's really hard to accept it. And, you know, you just the, the what works for a democracy in the U.S. or elsewhere is that you have to accept and concede. And, you know, I think when people, Julia, you mentioned this, when voters and people just see the boring parts of voting, like is literally just some people working and putting things into a machine to count the votes. There's, there's nothing that exciting, actually. And if more people can learn about it that way, I think I think in some ways it'd be good to, for less people to be excited about elections because the reality of it is that maybe it's not quite as exciting as everyone thinks. And then people will know that it's probably not nearly as bad as some people think, too. Elections are boring. That is our takeaway, folks. <laughs> but your research is in, <laughs> Professor Gross. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for all the work you do. And thanks so much to the Schwarzenegger Institute for letting us borrow your time. I know you're very busy, a lot going on leading up to the election. And hopefully everyone will go check out the Schwarzenegger Institute research uh, because it really is very important at this point in time. So thanks again to you, our guest. Thanks to Brandon. Thanks to Shane. Thanks to Kyle McDonald, our editor, and Maria Virginia Alano, our producer on the show. Of course, thanks to everyone listening. Remember to hit that follow or subscribe button wherever it is that you are tuning in. We'll be back again soon. That's the end of this episode. Signing off for now. <laughs>